Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 44 as we continue working through the book of Psalms over the summer. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 470, so you don't have to take a lot of time to find it. I want to begin our time this morning by talking about sort of a background aspect to this psalm that will sort of be sort of hiding in the back there, but is going throughout the psalm, and that is many commentators refer to this psalm as a national lament, meaning that it was given to the nation of Israel as a whole to express their pain and their hope in the Lord. So you're going to notice one different thing that you're going to see as opposed to the other psalms that we looked at is that all of the language, with one exception we'll get to, but all of the language is we, us, not I, me. This is a song for the people of God as a corporate body. And I want to bring this up because generally speaking, I don't think there is enough we, us in our churches. I think especially in American Christianity, there is an overemphasis on the individual. Sort of a Christian version of don't tread on me. There is a regular temptation, again, specifically for American Christians and maybe specifically for people who have decided to live on an island. Is that a little too close to the toes there? <laughs> There's a regular temptation to isolation, to rugged individualism. We, we even call it rugged individualism, I think, so that we feel better about it. Again, everyone is called to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Everyone is called to live a personal life of faithfulness. But if we're honest with ourselves, there is a regular temptation into what I'll call hyper-individualism in our faith flock. When we are saved... We're not just a bunch of individuals who are saved. We are saved into a people of God. And then God has called us to connect with a local expression of the global people of God. Just like an extended family is made up of different nuclear families, we too have a personal identity with Christ. We have a global, historical identity with the Christians from every age and from every country. But we also have a corporate identity with a local body of believers. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this psalm. Because again, this lament is not just for the individual believers, but the individual believers as parts of, as members of the people of God, the community of faith. So let's look at this national lament where we are going to see an active God that we serve and that we cry out to. So let's begin by looking there at verses 1 to 3, where we're going to see the stories of God's power. Follow along as I read. 
Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Verse 1 of this national lament begins by referencing the old stories. It begins to the present people of God testifying to God's actions in history that they have heard with their ears. As it says in verse 1, Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. They have heard the old stories of God saving and providing for his people. And specifically, as we'll see in a second, God's saving and providing work in leading the people of Israel into the promised land. We see an important foundational truth about the Bible that it is very historical. To talk about who God is in the present and who he will be in the future, the psalmist begins by talking about who God was and what he did in the past. You see this Throughout the Bible, you especially see it in the Psalms, and there are many references to Israel's history to show to the present people the character of God. We think specifically of Psalm 136, which is pretty much a running litany of Israel's history with the frame, his love endures forever. We see this brought out explicitly in the New Testament, the book of Romans. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Maybe you have wondered, why are there all these historical stories in the Bible? Why isn't it just the principled truths of the epistles? One of the reasons is that we can see who God is in history and how he acts and his character. If you want to know who God will be today and into the future, see what he did in the past. As the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So what did the psalmist learn from the old stories? What were the people supposed to see in the old stories? Let's look back at verse 2. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you've planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. The judgment of the nations and the the good of God's people, as expressed in the story of the people of Israel coming into the promised land. Here the psalmist condenses that whole history by contrasting how God treated the people of Israel and how God treated the Canaanites. God brought judgment on the Canaanites. He afflicted the peoples. He removed them from the land. With your own hand you drove out the nations. But in contrast, how did God treat the Israelites? Them you planted, them you set free. God punished the Canaanites and removed them from the land, but God placed Israel in the land and set them free from slavery in Egypt. 
But again, one of these underlying themes throughout this psalm that I want you to see here first in verse 2 is that God is the one doing all the action. If you think back to Israel coming into the promised land, what do you do with all those stories about Israel going to war against the Canaanites? In this retelling, the psalmist doesn't say, and we went off to war and won. What does he say? You with your own hand drove out the nations. And that's the third thing I want us to see in verse 3. What happened to Israel was the work of God. Look at verse 3 again. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So the contrast is continued, but it's no longer a contrast between the people of Israel and the Canaanites, but between God and his people. It wasn't their own sword that saved them. It wasn't their arm, their power that saved them. Israel could not take credit for conquering the promised land. Rather, it was the power of God that made it so they had any success at all. You know, the people back then are the same as us today. We want the credit. In thinking about God's work in history, the psalmist knows that we as sinful people want to take credit for what God has done. But we must not, we cannot, because the credit, the glory belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. We see this come to the forefront in the book of Judges in a very important verse to help us understand Gideon's story. Which if you want me to get talking for a while, let's just talk about Gideon and how he has not been taught well over the years. But I will not be on my soapbox this morning. But I want you to hear Judges chapter 7 verse 2. This is a part of the story where God is shrinking Gideon's army. Okay, and God actually tells us why he's doing this. Listen to verse 2 of Judges chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Notice, by the way, he doesn't say there's too many for them to fight the Midianites. It's for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. The reason God shrinks Gideon's army is so that the Israelites won't think, man, we did an awesome job today in war. It was not a better fighting strategy. It was so that people could not claim credit for what God did. One of the neat stories out of Gideon is that sometimes God shrinks his people so that we don't take credit for what he does. God acted that way in the past, and so we can trust that that is how God will act in the present and the future, because of his love and grace to us. And that's the message of the last part of verse 3. Let's look at verse 3 again. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm 
And look at that last part. And the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Why are we talking about the light from God's face? The light of God's face is an expression that is meant to convey God's favor towards someone. Think of the ironic blessing, the famous benediction from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance, his face upon you, and give you peace. When it talks about their victory coming by the light of God's face and his delight in them, it is telling us that the Israelites did not earn their victory by being so awesome and that God's like, well, now I have to give you victory. But it is because his people are the recipients of his gracious favor. Again, one of my favorite verses from Deuteronomy I think underscores this. That any success we have, any success God's people have, is because of God's gracious favor towards us. Deuteronomy chapter 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God saves us, God provides for us, God fights for us because of his great love and favor towards us. And this then leads in the next section of the psalm that, that this understanding of who God was and therefore is leads to this declaration of trust in verses 4 to 8. Follow along as I read. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. This section begins with an exclamation that God is my king. As king, the believer submits to the rule of the king, but also as king of the universe, he is able to ordain salvation for Jacob. Again, it is in line with this idea of an active God who is doing these things. God rules the world by his sovereign power. Now, it must be said when he talks about ordained salvation for Jacob, when this is used in the Old Testament, there is a full range of meaning here. As we'll see in the following verses, salvation can be used to speak of the triumph over enemies and war. And we must see the reference to salvation as being delivered or saved from the problems of this world, but also including our salvation in Christ. It is a full-orbed word. I've talked about before the way this comes into English. Of we talk about being saved by the lifeguard and our salvation in Christ. And unless the lifeguard read you the Romans road, we know the difference there. And it refers to both. 
So God saves his people by giving them victory over their enemies. Again, through the power of the Lord, they push down their foes and they tread down those who rise against them. But also in here, in verse 6, the psalmist brings it back to the heart issue of where is our trust found? Look at verse 6. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. The psalmist does not trust in his own ability, in the ability of the armies of Israel for his well-being. It is only the Lord. And he trusts the Lord because God has done so in the past and has shown himself faithful. He goes from a declaration to what he wants God to do in the present to in verse 7, but you have saved us from opposing, have put to shame those who hate us. His confidence is in the Lord. His faith is in the Lord. I want you to feel that confidence, even as he will later complain to the Lord. When our hope is in the Lord, when our trust is in God, we do not have to be afraid. As Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we see this in verse 8, In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name. This present trust that he has because of how God acted in the past leads him to bold declarations of trust and worship. If you will boast, boast in the Lord. Because again, if you're honest with yourself, if you boast in yourself, you will fail because we always fail. And that just leads to insecurity and fear. But when we boast in the Lord, we never have to be afraid. And we can live lives of worship and thanksgiving in all that we do. But this bold declaration, this triumphant shout of praise does not change the hardship that the people experience. Again, I said at the beginning, this is a national lament, and we haven't felt very lamenty yet in this psalm. But let's now look at 9 to 16. I'm going to begin by reading 9 through 14. So again, in verse 8, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Verse 9 But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock. Among the peoples. 
For the sake of time this morning, I want to deal with this list more as a whole than with the specific details of it, because I think the point of all these details is to build one upon the other. I want you to first notice the length of that list of complaints. As I read it, I hope you felt a little overwhelmed by all of the complaints and the many descriptions of all that had gone wrong. Again, remember, this is poetry, and we're supposed to feel the words, not just understand them in what they are saying. That there's one after the other, the shame and the disgrace and the defeat in the heart of the psalmist and the people. The length also helps us to feel the depth of the pain. As we mentioned before, one of the gifts of lament is the brutal honesty in their expressions of pain. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. This vivid picture of the pain that the psalmist and the people are feeling. But the other thing we need to notice in this list is all of the yous. You have done this. You have done this. You have done this. This accusation against God. This is the other side of the coin. As I said, one of the underlying themes of this psalm is everything that God is doing, and that is true in all these complaints. God is still the active one here. You have rejected us and disgraced us. You have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. It is their enemies that taunt and scorn them, but it is the Lord who has rejected and disgraced them. God is the one who has brought them victory, but here we see the complaint that God has abandoned them. Now, interestingly, this leads to really the only personal language in the text, and that's verses 15 to 16. Look at that. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. For a brief moment in this psalm, the psalmist diverts into personal language. And it's meant to stand out because it is different from the overwhelming pattern of the psalm. I think this speaks to the depth of the pain that even though he is talking about corporate pain, he then personalizes it so as to feel the depth of it. That all day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. He is bringing the pain of his heart to the Lord. So how do we understand this? Why is this happening? If if God is the one who brings them victory, why is he allowing this? Why is he causing this to happen? And I will leave that dangling there a little bit before we get into the next section of the psalm. Because I want you to feel the pain that this psalmist is feeling and I want you to connect his pain and the people's pain with your own. That when you have felt rejected and disgraced 
by the Lord. What do we do? Because before we get to hope, there's going to be another difficult layer to this suffering. And that's found in verses 17 to 22, where the psalmist tells us that this is unjust suffering. Let's look at verses 17 to 22. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This section of the psalm is difficult because what we have is a biblical author saying that the people are innocent in the midst of their suffering. So verse 17, all, has, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, no, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our steps had not departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. The people of God feel left out with the wild animals and the aroma of death is around them. And if they had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? The psalmist expresses his bewilderment because he knows that if the people had engaged in idolatry, God would know it, for he knows the secrets of the heart. This makes this psalm difficult because we're not used to declarations of innocence in the face of suffering. It's easy for us, easier for us to understand a psalm like Psalm 32 where there is a clear line between God's discipline and judgment on the people and their need for repentance. It's a little easier for us to understand that God disciplines us so that we will repent and turn away from our sin. But here, the biblical author is declaring the people's innocence. And that's a whole other factor that causes me to wrestle with this passage because it's a little hard for me to accept that the people of Israel were innocent. The history of Israel is full of them turning away from God, worshiping idols, and being false to the covenant. And so this is one of those times we need to lean into that the Holy Spirit inspired these words through human authors. There's no reason for us to think that the psalmist is lying and no clues in the text that would lead us to not believe the words written. And here, we're helped by verse 22. Look at verse 22. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The phrase, for your sake, should be understood as suffering because of their relationship with God. As one author writes, in their fidelity to the Lord, they receive greater abuse than in they had conformed to the pagan world. And I think this verse is key to helping us understand the psalm as a whole. 
There is a call to rely on our sovereign God because it is in our faithfulness to him that is bringing about the specific suffering of this psalm. It's good to to remember that the Bible presents different reasons for suffering, and one of them is because of our faith. We think of 1 Peter chapter 2, which says, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What Peter is saying is you don't get any credit from God if you suffer because of your own sinful behavior. But God is pleased when we endure unjust suffering because of his name. What is also interesting and helpful in understanding this psalm is that the Apostle Paul cites verse 22 in the book of Romans. Let me read from Romans chapter 8, and some of these words are going to be familiar, but probably like me, you didn't remember the citation of Psalm 44 in the middle of it. Listen to Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, parts of that are very familiar to us. But if you would have asked me, is there in the middle of that a quote from Psalm 44, I would have been clueless. Thank you, footnotes in a Bible. And again, how Paul uses this in Romans helps us understand what the psalmist is saying here in Psalm 44. Paul seems to be using this quotation to prove that God's people will face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and swords. And because those are the realities of this life, we need to know that God loves us and that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we face unjust suffering... The only option in this situation is to run to the Lord for relief and cling to his steadfast love, which is what we learn in the last section. Let's look in the last section, verses 23 to 26. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In this last section of the text, again, one of these aspects of lament is we have these requests made to God. They end with prayers for God to act. 
Again, as we've noted throughout this whole thing, there's an emphasis on what God does. Our life of faith is not just one of trying harder. We have a God who will save and deliver us. So the psalmist calls for God to awake. This connects with the idea of God is sleeping. He is calling God to act on behalf of his people. The request for God, do not reject us forever. God feels distant. God is letting all this bad stuff happen. And so the people then pray for God to rise up, come to our help. We see the continuation of the felt rejection in verse 24. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Do you feel like God has hidden his face from you? Do you feel that he allows affliction and oppression to happen to you? The psalmist and the people felt the same way. What does the psalmist encourage us to do? What does he push us towards? To cry out to the Lord in that pain. Call on him to deliver and defend us. Before we get to that claim in 26, I want us to look at verse 25. Before culminating in this cry for God's redemption... We need to see the posture of the psalmist and therefore of the people. Verse 25, for our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. I think this picture is doing two things. One, it speaks to how the people are feeling. In their pain, they are feeling like they are climbing on the ground. They are as low as they can get. They are wallowing away in the dust. But I also think there's another level here of, as an expression of humility and repentance before the Lord. Before crying out to God for rescue, we must come before God with all humility. We must come with humble and penitent hearts before the Lord. It is a picture of us laying ourselves before the Lord and his mercy and his grace. It's also a very vulnerable posture. And we don't want to put ourselves in a place of vulnerability. We are too prideful. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Thank you very much. But that is not what the psalmist calls us to do. The psalmist calls us to lie before the Lord in humility. And it is then that we can cry out, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the culmination of this psalm, calling God to act in redemption to his people. The word redeemed is it was often used back then to talk about buying someone's freedom from slavery that they were in due to debt. As one of the study Bibles puts it, to pay the price to protect and save. Our only hope in a world of unjust suffering is God's redemption. 
which is motivated by his steadfast love for us. On this side of the cross, we know that this redemption ultimately comes in the sacrificial death of Jesus. Ultimately, he paid the price for our freedom from sin and gave us salvation. And he did not do that because we earned it, but because of his great steadfast love for us. The familiar words of Romans chapter 5, But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you are brought down to the dust, when you are ready to approach God in humility, then you can cry out to the Lord for his redemption. And he offers that redemption freely through faith in Jesus because of his great love to us. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. Number one, our faith is corporate. Again, I hope you saw that theme run throughout the entire psalm. Essential to a life of following Jesus is that as individuals, we belong to the corporate body of Christ. And we have to be wise knowing that our culture is no help to us here. The broader culture in which we live encourages us to have a hyper-individualized understanding of our faith and an isolationist view of our faith. And every day we must fight that temptation. That as individual Christians, we are members of a larger body of Christ. That when Jesus saves us, he saves us into a people a people of God. Secondly, our faith is historical. If you want to know how God is going to act today and into the future, look at how he acted in the past. The Bible is full of history. The Bible is always referring back to historical events. God has shown us how he acted in the past. And this then shows us how he will act in the present and into the future. In one sense, the future is not unknown because we know how God acted in the past. Look how God acted in history and know that he will act with the same love and mercy towards you today and into the future. Finally, number three, our our faith is in an active God who redeems his people. We've seen throughout this psalm that God is an active God. He is in sovereign control of our lives and all of history. And at the center of that activity is his redemption of his people. Through the sacrificial death of Jesus, we are redeemed from sin and saved. Not because we have earned it, but because of his great steadfast love towards us. And this is especially true when we face unjust suffering. And we need to understand this in the context of the specific emphasis of this psalm, that suffering because of our faith in God. That when we feel rejected and abandoned by God, even though when we are doing what is right and good, we can stand on the solid rock of our redemption in Christ because of his steadfast love. For us. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for this psalm that we would corporately sing of your faithfulness and your steadfast love to us, that even in a world of unjust suffering, you have redeemed us, you have saved us, and we know that you will deliver us. God, that we would cry out to you in our pain and that we would humbly come before you, the active, sovereign God who redeems and saves his people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.